Before we get into the lesson this morning, let me uh, make a couple of corrections from the bulletin uh, that uh, printed in the bulletin. Concerning Jim Wilson's uh, situation, we had had that uh, Jim has melanoma. It's actually multiple myeloma. We want to make that correction, and uh, Jim is able to be with us today. Uh, we're glad that he is, but this is a terrible disease, a malignant disease of the blood cells in the bone marrow, and we certainly want to pray for, uh, for uh, Jim very fervently. And uh, also, uh, also Melba Wilson, uh, will have surgery not on her good eye, but on the bad eye. We had, the, uh, had that reversed in the bulletin, but we want to make that uh, correction. So let's keep both Jim and Melba in our prayers. And we updated you, too, in the Bible class from uh, Barbara had talked to uh, uh, Ann Kiesler last night, and just to make those who were not uh, here aware of that, that uh, the twins are doing some better. The baby, uh, uh, that, the twin that was having more difficulty, doing some better. But they're hopeful if they can get through Wednesday that uh, things will be, uh, will be good uh, for, the, uh, for the birth of the uh, twins of Kara and Justin Fortune. Uh, that's, uh, of course, Fred and Ann Kiesler's daughter, Kara. So uh, let's continue to keep them uh, in our prayers uh, as well. We're delighted that you are here this morning to uh, be a part of our worship from time to time on Sunday mornings. Uh, we have been dealing with a series of lessons and probably will continue that for a little while longer, maybe off and on, if not on, more than off or uh, until the end of the year, on the, the New Testament Christian. And this was the theme, as I have mentioned before, of the lectureship at Memphis last March, the uh, New Testament Christian. Some great topics were discussed and such a wonderful variety of subject matter that I thought it would be good to choose uh, some of those and, and study together uh, along, that, uh, along that theme. And so today we resume that uh, theme, and uh, we do so by talking about a matter of, of great importance, and that matter is the tongue, and specifically the fact that the New Testament Christian guards his tongue. You know, Jesus had a great deal to say about our words. Uh, James, in the text that we will primarily draw on in our study this morning, in James chapter 3, uh, had a very sobering and very important treatise on, on the subject of, of the tongue. And the Bible as a whole has a great deal to say about the importance of our words. You remember the, song, the, the writer of Proverbs wrote, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Brother Sam Wilcutt, who, uh, who presented this lesson at Memphis, and this was one of the lessons I was privileged to hear as well as to read again in the lectureship book, and he did an outstanding Job Sam was a very faithful gospel preacher, but he, he mentioned in that lesson that, that we seem to have uh, an abundance of words, an excess of words in our society today. There's a whole lot of talking uh, going on, obviously, in our society today, and much of, it, uh, much of it is not good. Again, the writer of Proverbs wrote, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips 
is wise. Those words, by inspiration from the wise man Solomon, make it abundantly clear that we need to be careful about our words. But what did Jesus say about it? Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus said, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. That's sobering, isn't it? Then he goes on, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And certainly that ought to cause us to weigh very carefully what we say, when we say it, and how we say it, and to make sure that we are living in compliance with what the Word of God teaches as New Testament Christians who are determined to truly guard our tongues. As we get into this study today, I'd like for us to look first at the wrong or sinful uses of the tongue. And much time could be spent, and time does not permit us to spend a great deal of time on each one of these, but simply to bring them to our attention and encourage you to contemplate them further and to study the appropriate passages that pertain to the wrong uses of the tongue. We begin where you might expect us to begin, with lying. And lying is a very serious matter. In the Colossian letter at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. There's the New Testament Christian that is being addressed by the Apostle Paul, the one who has put off the old deeds. Well, a part of putting off the old deeds includes putting off uh, lying. And so we do not lie. Proverbs 6, 16 through 18, the Old Testament passage there. Remember where, where the writer tells us there are six things that the Lord hates? Yes, seven that are an abomination to him. A proud look is the first one. A lying tongue is the second. And in Revelation 21.8, we are soberly reminded that all liars shall have their part in the fire that burns with in the fire that burn, a lake with, that burns with fire and brimstone. I'll get it out in a minute here. The lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Very sobering passage. So lying is a very, very serious matter. And there are many ways in which one could lie. You can cheat on your income taxes. That's lying, isn't it? Uh, you can cheat on an exam. That's lying, isn't it? That's a form of lying. It's a form of deceit. And so there are uh, many forms. Flattery. You know, I've mentioned this before, I think, but sometimes people say, well, that's very flattering when we say something. Well, I hope not, because flattery is really technically a lie. Uh, if we compliment someone, we should compliment them sincerely because we mean it. And flattery is uh, basically, uh, basically playing up to someone in a way that is deceitful or uh, hypocritical. We don't flatter, we genuinely uh, compliment. And so there are many ways in which lying uh, can certainly be engaged in, and we need to avoid all of them. Obviously profanity, and oh, what a world we live in today where profanity is so, so prevalent in our society. I know that there are those of us here today, and I would assume just about all of us, with, with the exception of the very youngest children who are here, who can think back to a time where there was no way that you would hear on television the words that you now hear on television. You just simply would never 
hear those words. And the use of God's name in such a flippant, uh, a flippant way. And the use of, of, uh, of that uh, name that we should hold in, in, refer- in reverence and yet it is used who knows how many thousands of times perhaps in a day and through the media, uh, not, not absolutely uh, taking the Lord's name in vain as some might think of taking the Lord's name in vain, but as Tom Holland once said on one of the Good News Today, uh, Tom's Pastime Porch segments long ago, it seems that we live in a society today where a great many people think the first name of God is, Oh my. And that's what you hear. That's what I'm talking about. You don't have to go beyond that to be, to be taking the Lord's name in vain and using it flippantly. And so, obviously, we need to avoid uh, that kind of profanity. Let's look at uh, the verse uh, preceding Colossians 3.9 that we looked at uh, just a moment ago. In Colossians 3 and verse, uh, uh, verse 8, but now you must also put off all these. Keep in mind in this context, the Apostle Paul is talking about the complete change that has taken place in the child of God now. Because he is a child of God, there are things that he has put off. Anger, wrath, Malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Filthy language out of your mouth. And we've mentioned before in a lesson on the tongue uh, some few years ago that even euphemisms uh, need to be avoided by those who are Christians where there is a more perhaps pleasant sounding, as some think of it, word that has been substituted for, for God, uh, like gosh or gee, all of these euphemisms have their origin, and you look them up in the dictionary, they have their origin in profanity, that is, in using the name of God uh, or, or Jesus or using uh, the place called hell uh, in a euphemistic way, but the origin is nonetheless um, uh, an origin that we need to stay away from. So. Let's avoid even the euphemisms, that is, those substitutes that have been placed there as a somewhat better sounding uh, word for the even worse word. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, but make sure you avoid anything that could smack of, of, um, of profanity. What does James say in James chapter 2 and verse 12? So speak and so do. This is a good rule of thumb right here. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Well, that really takes us back to what Jesus said in the passage we looked at earlier, Matthew 12, 36 and 37. By your words, you are going to be judged. What you say, what you do, but what you say is going to be involved. And so we need to weigh them very carefully. Speak, speak and act as someone who is going to stand in judgment one day and who is going to be judged by the perfect law of liberty, that is, by the law of Christ. And that is the New Testament, of course. Well, of course, then there's gossip. And uh, another term for this in Scripture we often see is, uh, is tail-bearing. Tail-bearing. In fact, that's the word that's used in the passage we have cited here in Proverbs chapter 11 and, uh, and verse 13, where the writer says, A tail-bearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit 
conceals a matter. Well, what if it's true? Somebody says, well, what I'm telling is true. It doesn't matter whether it's true. Truth is not the, truth is not the barometer here. Truth is not the standard. It, the question is, should it be told? Is it something I need to, uh, to be passing, uh, passing on? And uh, many times it's preceded by, you know, uh, don't tell anybody I told you this, but... Well, if you've got to preface it with don't tell anybody I told you this, then maybe you shouldn't tell it to the person you're about to tell it to in the first place. And so we need to make sure that we are not guilty of tail-bearing, even when truth is involved. And I believe we are wise enough and of good enough judgment and of uh, sufficient maturity as children of God here today to know what constitutes gossip, and what constitutes something that needs to be passed along for the benefit uh, of, those, of those involved. What about angry words? Well, Ephesians 4.26 says, uh, Be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. There is a righteous indignation, obviously. There is an anger that we can experience that in no way involves sin. But there is an anger that we've already seen in connection with another of our passages in the uh, Colossian letter, which obviously has in mind at Colossians uh, uh, chapter uh, 3 that we read, verse 8, remember, but now you must also put off all these, anger, put off anger, all anger, well, no, not all anger, but the wrong kind of anger. Uh, Be angry and sin not. The Lord was very angry on more than one occasion. On two occasions he was so angry uh, that he he overturned the tables uh, uh, the money changers' tables in the temple. That was anger, but it was a righteous indignation. But let's not, uh, let's not fool ourselves or kid ourselves or rationalize uh, an anger that is an improper anger and justify it and define it, misdefine it, as righteous indignation. And again, I think we have hopefully the maturity and we have the Word of God that will help us to understand and appreciate the difference uh, in the two, backbiting. Well, Romans 1, verse 30, the Apostle Paul speaks of those who were guilty among the Gentiles of some, some terrible sins as we, would, uh, as we would characterize them. And in that first chapter of Romans, concerning sexual immorality, covetousness, all of these things, verse 30 That verse begins with backbiters. And then it is followed by haters of God, violent and proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, etc. But among the list, backbiters. That is, those who will eat you up to your face and tear you down to your back. No child of God, obviously, should ever be guilty of that kind of use of the tongue. What about murmuring? and complaining. You know, this is one of those uh, sins of the tongue that perhaps some people uh, seem to think must be a, a, a trivial matter. Maybe it's not the best thing, but it's, it's not, a major, not a major problem. Well, I can't find anything to support that in Scripture, and I don't believe you can either. And so we must not downplay murmuring and Complaining. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in verse uh, 8, beginning to gain the context a little more fully. 
nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Now, sexual immorality, that's pretty serious. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Can you read in your Old Testament about occasion after occasion where God's people, the Israelites, murmured against Moses and complained and murmured against, uh, against God? But even in murmuring against Moses, God's, uh, God's chosen leader of his people, they were condemned. And on that one occasion in Numbers chapter 21, when the poisonous snakes were sent among them, many of them died. And it got their attention to the point that they cried out, for relief, and God in His mercy provided that relief. But what was the sin that brought about the punishment in the first place? Murmuring and complaining. Closely related is criticizing. What about criticizing? Well, I can read in Numbers chapter 12 where Miriam and Aaron, here were two very... uh, very blessed people. Aaron was a high priest. Miriam, of course, the sister of Moses and, and Aaron. But beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, I can read where they came and criticized Moses. Verse 3, incidentally, of Numbers 12 says that Moses took that very, very well. In fact, verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. But what did they say? They came and criticized him. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And here's a very sobering, sobering statement that follows that. And the Lord heard it. And the Lord heard it. And that's what we need to keep in mind. The Lord hears it all. Whether we say it to a family member, whether we say it to a friend, no matter to whom we say it, and we don't even have to say it, do we? We think it and the Lord knows it. But that's a very sobering statement. They criticized Moses, and the Lord heard it. And of course, Miriam was struck with leprosy as the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. And uh, Moses cried out to the Lord, Please heal her, O God, I pray. What an attitude. What an attitude. You know, it would have been very easy for Moses to have said, Miriam, look at you now. Where'd your criticism get you? Look at that stuff all over you. You got what you deserve. No, no, his attitude was crying out to the Lord, please heal her. Moses was a humble man. Moses was truly a man of God. But criticism... Criticism was condemned. And I do not doubt the attitude with which those words were spoken by Miriam and Aaron. Do you? Not at all. There's a difference between expressing concern where concern needs to be expressed or bringing up something that, uh, that needs to be expressed at the appropriate time. But, you know, we have business meetings from time to time where uh, the elders meet with uh, the deacons and the men of the congregation. And we have uh, discussion when there is something that needs to be brought up. 
It's brought up in that meeting. That's the time for it to be brought up. It should be brought up in the proper way, with the proper attitude. But to say nothing about something about which somebody may be concerned and then go right after the meeting and start talking to everybody who was in the meeting in a way that constitutes unjust or undeserved or improper criticism is not the way to handle. That's why we have the meetings, isn't it? That's why we have the meetings. And so there's a way to express oneself and to express it in a Christian manner and to express concern without being inappropriately critical. And then, finally, teaching false doctrine. Teaching and preaching false doctrine. Oh, what a serious matter this is. In Matthew chapter 7, as a part of the great Sermon on the Mount, remember what Jesus said there, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They come to you in sheep's clothing, and generally that's the way the false teachers come, in sheep's clothing. The honey is dripping, so to speak. Sugar wouldn't melt in their mouth, or whatever that expression is. I think that's it. Anyway, but on the inside, ravenous wolves. And then when you look at another statement of the Lord, over in Matthew chapter 24, at verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. They came, they are still coming. And we need to certainly be aware of that and avoid teaching anything privately or any other way, obviously, that is false. Well, we said James 3 was a passage that certainly is a great treatise on, on the subject of the tongue. And then incidentally, in James 3, beginning at verse 1, James there says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that ye shall receive a stricter judgment. That really ties into what we've just said about using the tongue to teach false doctrine. James warns there, don't just jump at the opportunity to become a teacher. You need to take that very, very seriously. You need to weigh that very carefully and understand the responsibility that is going to be upon you because of the influence that you have. But then he shifts his attention after dealing with teachers generally to, to all uh, Christians and the use of the tongue. And it's a great uh, treatise which we have studied uh, in times Past. But look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. He has just given illustrations about how large ships are turned by, uh, by a small uh, rudder and uh, about the horses and putting a bridle or a bit into a horse's mouth and you can turn the whole body. Those two illustrations are designed to show how powerful this little tongue is how powerful it is, and how destructively powerful it is when it is misused. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. Now, with that in mind, <clears throat> you look at that picture, and you immediately ask, please tell me what a train on a wooden bridge has to do at all with this lesson. 
or with this passage? Well, I uh, was looking at some uh, material that I had in my file from very faithful great gospel preacher Frank Chesser, and he had mentioned this, and I did a little research on it too, and sure enough, you can, uh, you can find it, and some of you may be old enough here to, uh, to remember this, but that's a, wooden, that's a wooden trestle, and there were signs on the Southern Railway and, and various, uh, various railways that would be before a train, located at a place before the train reached this wooden trestle. And you know what the sign would say? T something to this effect. Shut the ash pan. Shut the ash pan. Why was the engineer being reminded by that sign to shut the ash pan? Because if he didn't shut the ash pan, there was a possibility that as he crossed that wooden bridge, a live coal, a hot coal from that ash pan, might fall onto the timbers and create a fire and burn down that massive wooden bridge, potentially from one hot coal, I presume. Therefore, the admonition was, shut the ash pan. And isn't that good for us, too? Maybe that's something we need to think about if we're tempted by Satan to say that which we have no business saying, we just need to tell ourselves, shut the ash pan. Shut the ash pan. Make sure that, that that word that is going to hurt, that statement that is going to produce a great deal of hurt, never is expressed. Shut the ash pan. I like that admonition. Well, then James talks about some contradictions of the tongue in uh, verses 8 through 12. And he reminds us, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. No man can tame it. Is that, does he mean to say, well, then just say whatever you want to. You can't tame it anyway. No, he's saying you can't get it to the point where it cannot jump out and hurt. You've always got to guard it. It's not like an animal that you may domesticate to the point that you don't have to do the training process anymore. That animal is domesticated. That animal is trained. That animal is not going to do what that animal once did before you went through the training process. You can count on that. But the tongue is not like that. It's not like that. It can jump out and bite somebody in a heartbeat, as you will, if you will. So, no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, now here are the contradictions. With it, he says, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring can yield both salt water and fresh. So you should not be a walking contradiction as a New Testament Christian, where you are praising God on the one hand, and on the other hand, you are cursing men. It's interesting, and Sam Wilcott points this out in his lesson, quoting from the late guy in Woods, that the idea of praising God and cursing men, when James writes it ought not to be so, literally the tense there is, it ought not to have begun. It ought not to have begun. 
it's not that it ought not to, con not to continue. It should never have started in the first place. That kind of contradictory use of the tongue should never have started. The tongue that blesses God on the one hand and curses man on the other. Now, think with me about the word curse here because when we think of curse, we think of something generally different than what is meant here. The curse here that James talks about is the same thing that Jesus did in cursing the fig tree, Mark's account. Uh, Peter in uh, uh, verses uh, 20 and 21 uh, says, uh, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Well, the Lord didn't curse something from the standpoint of using foul language as we generally think about cursing. He condemned it. And that's the idea of, uh, of condemning. So on the one hand, you praise God and bless God and uphold and uplift God, but you put down your fellow man. You speak of your fellow man in a belittling way. That's the contradiction about which James writes. Oh, Peter has some good words for us, doesn't he? In 1 Peter 3.10, as he quotes, really, from Psalm 34, 12 and 13. For he who would love life and seek good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And the source was the Old Testament. Who is the man, the psalmist asked, who desires life and loves many days that he may seek good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. I like what Sam Wilcott says near the conclusion of his lesson in the lectureship book. He says, a New Testament Christian understands the beauty of words or encouragement, noting the wonderful example of uh, should be of encouragement, noting the wonderful example of Barnabas. Words of praise, Hebrews 13, 15. Words of humble reproof, uh, Galatians 6, 1. And words of instruction, Psalm 66, 16. And then he says this, May God bless all of his children as they strive to live in such a way where none of their feet are placed in their mouths. That's what we should strive to live for. And I had the typo in there I, uh, myself, I'm sure. Let none of their feet be placed in their mouths. Sam concluded with a great passage in Psalm 1914, which I conclude with here before we look at some quickly, some good uses of the tongue. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. We need to memorize that one and do more than just memorize the words, don't we? To guard against the evil uses of the tongue, but there are some good ones. Preaching the truth is one. Encouraging and exhorting one another. Giving an answer for our faith, 1 Peter 3.15. Give an answer to every man that asks a reason of the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. Singing spiritual songs as we're about to do in just a moment. Approaching God in prayer as we have already done publicly today in this worship service confessing our sins as we do in our prayers, and yes, confessing the name of Christ. And that reminds us that confessing the name of Christ is a part of our complete obedience to him as we are told to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John 8, 24. Repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5. Confess Jesus to be the Christ, Matthew 10, 32 and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and then we are to be faithful thereafter, even unto death. If you haven't done those things to become Christian, 
a New Testament Christian, who can have the power of God's Word at his disposal and the power of prayer then to help him guard his tongue as a New Testament Christian should, we plead with you to become a Christian this morning. And if you have but you haven't been faithful and need to come home to your first love because you've sinned in a public way, you need that forgiveness and the prayers of brothers and sisters. We plead with you to come home today as we stand and as we sing.